Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in a portion uh, of Torah that is giving us different laws regarding living as a holy people. Right? Kedoshim tihiyu, you shall be holy, because I, Adonai, am holy. And so to live in right relationship with this divine force, we are to live into the ways of righteousness and holiness. So we've talked lots um, in here about how different the biblical understanding is of holiness uh, than ours in some ways, not in all ways, um, but it's a long time ago, right? Things have evolved. So, um, But the categories really haven't changed, right? When we talk about how am I supposed to behave as a righteous person, as a person who has some understanding of boundaries related to being holy, the, the categories remain in place. So Leviticus 18 is famous, infamous, I might even say, um, because it discusses, one of the things it discusses are the rules around sexual relationships. Welcome. Just good timing, Lisa. Um, so there, in any society that purports to have a sense of morality, you, you have to address human appetite because that's where we tend to go astray, right? That's where we leave the path um, is when we're dealing with the strong human desires, the strong human appetites, um, and strong human emotions, right? Violence comes out of the emotion of you know, anger, jealousy, greed, whatever, right? So um, when we're dealing with emotion and or appetite, those are the places you need the most regulation because it's the places we're most likely to fail to live into um, any kind of ethical sensibility. So it is that we have Leviticus 18. Um, what we learn from who you're not allowed, and remember this is addressed to an Israelite man, Right? What we learn from who you're not allowed to have sexual relationships with as a Israelite male is the definition of family. That's really what we learn from this. Because part of those laws are about incest. So then we learn, okay, who makes up the grouping of people who are too close for you to engage in a sexual relationship with and or who would be problematic, not genetically, you know, not physically, but problematic because of the family structure. So I want you to read as much for who is a nuclear family in ancient Israel as much as for um, any kind of ethical sense around behavior. Um, it, from my studies of anthropology, um, it, it, we've talked in here before about terrestrial human culture, THC, right? So things that are common to every single culture that has ever existed. Um, incest is one of them. Incest is one of the things that is a taboo in, or I shouldn't say taboo because that, that has a very specific meaning, um, that is no, no, right? It, it's, there's a revulsion right, about incest in most cultures. There are exceptions 
For instance, in the royal family in Egypt, brother-sister marriages were encouraged. Um, so did they have evidence that sometimes that resulted in bad things? Probably. I, but I don't think that's the motivator for forbidding incestuous relationships. It seems that human beings have a built-in revulsion for for, in, for incest. Um, I am not in any way trying to suggest that if that's in place for some people that they are repulsive, right? I, I understand lots of things lead lots of people into lots of different kinds of responses, but um, but in general, human culture has kind of put that, you know, beyond the the norm in every culture. All right, which is a good thing. <laughs> that's a very good thing. Um, all right, so that's number one. Um, number two is that included in the laws of sexual relationships is, of course, the very famous. A man shall not lie with the man, the lyings of a woman. So we will look at that briefly, um, and, or as long as you want, um, because I want to close with another part of the Holiness Code, um, having studied with um, my Hebrew partner the writings of Rabbi Yael Shai this week. I found them really beautiful and want to close with that. So let's jump into Leviticus 18. Who wants to begin? Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, I, Adonai, am your God. You shall not copy the practices of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, or the land of Canaan to which I am taking you, nor shall you follow their laws. My rules alone shall you observe and faithfully follow my, my laws. I, Adonai, am your God. You shall keep my laws and my rules by the pursuit of which human beings shall live, I am Adonai. None of you men shall come near any one of his own flesh to uncover nakedness. I am Adonai. Your father's nakedness, that is, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. The nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's, whether born into the household or outside, do not uncover their nakedness. The nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, do not uncover their nakedness, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, who was born into your father's household, she is your sister, do not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's <coughs> flesh. Do not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your father's mother's flesh. Do not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. Do not approach his wife. She is your aunt. Do not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Do not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is the nakedness of your brother. Do not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you marry her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter and uncover her nakedness. They are kindred. It is depravity. Do not marry a woman as a rival to her sister and uncover her nakedness in the other's lifetime. Do not come near a woman during her menstrual period of impurity to uncover her nakedness. Do not have carnal relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not allow any of your offspring to be offered up to Molech 
and do not profane the name of your God, I am Adonai. Do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman, it is an abhorrence. Do not have carnal relations with any beast and defile yourself thereby. Likewise for a woman, she shall not lend herself to a beast to mate with it, it is perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, for it is by such that the nations that I am casting out before you defile themselves. Thus the land became defiled, and I called it to account for its iniquity, and the land spewed out its inhabitants. But you must keep my laws and my rules, and you must not do any of those abhorrent things, neither the citizen nor the stranger who resides among you. For all those abhorrent things were done by the people who were in the land before you, and the land became defiled. So let not the land spew you out for defiling it, as it spewed out the nation that came before you. All who do any of these abhorrent things, such persons shall be cut off from their people. You shall keep my charge not to engage in any of the abhorrent practices that were carried on before you, and you shall not defile yourselves through them. I, Adonai, am your God. All right. There you go. There you go. You have just read the entirety of chapter 18 of the book of Leviticus. Um, so um, it's also famous because it is read when in traditional synagogues? The wheels are turning. Yom Kippur. <clears throat> we do not read this. Right? So um, communities choose what they want to read, and both Reform and Reconstructionist communities have substituted a different text <coughs> about how to be holy, right? So <clears throat> so what do we learn about the Israelite family? There is nuclear family, and then there's the extended clan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our aller- Some of us have allergies. It's really bad today and yesterday, really bad. Um in looking at the clan, marriage within the extended clan was encouraged. Marriage in the nuclear family was discouraged strongly. Like that's what we just saw. We just saw the description of who you're absolutely not supposed to be involved with. Some of them are relationships that are flesh. That makes sense, right? It's repulsive on that level of incest. Others are not, though, right? A mother and her daughter, a sister. You can't marry, you know, two sisters. So this is obviously post-Genesis, right? This is post that early understanding of what is allowed in a polygamous society. Um, so there, there is the flesh relationships, and then there are the relationships a final relationships, um, which are relationships that are created through marriage. So once you take someone as your wife, now her relations are off limits to you because she has become your primary, you know, a final relationship. So through affinity, right? Through, through marriage. She is now a primary relative. She's your next of kin in our, in our lingo. Um, and so then, all the people who are close to her in a certain way become off limits to the Israelite male as family. Um, one can imagine how that evolves, right? Except if she dies. Right? If she dies, then, then he, he may sister. marry her sister. That's right. Um, because it's not incest, right, in the way that is like, right? It's not a good idea. 
Like, that's how that evolved, right? How did Rachel and Leah go? <laughs> right? Not terribly well, however much the rabbis would like to imagine that it did. Rachel and Leah was a, right? It, it's just a, it's a really bad idea <laughs> to marry rival sister. I mean, it just, not good. So, um, it does not, what it says is, your daughter's daughter, not your daughter. It does not say. That's right. And so, from that, the rabbis extrapolate, if this is a kalvachomer, mm-hmm. this is a, if the one, how much more so the other? If your granddaughter is considered close enough relationship to you that she is off limits, kalvachomer, the, your daughter. So All the more so your daughter. So it doesn't need to say it. That's the argument, and frankly, I buy it, because there's so many relationships here that are off limits that... It would be hard to imagine, except your daughter, <laughs> right? And I'm not being flip. I, it really, we laugh because it's like, right, it sounds ridiculous. Like that your, you know, your wife's sister's daughter, you know, is off limits, but not your own daughter. So so that they argue a call the homer from absence um, and the presence of the granddaughter being there. Taking it a step further to, to a traditional thing where the more orthodox Jewish man cannot even touch or shake hands with or a woman. Um, and I wondered if that comes from this, this an extension of this, this, this group of... That's an excellent question. Um, is it an extension? I will say I think that it's related to the idea of proper conduct vis-a-vis sexual sexuality and the rabbis extend a lot of things really far out calling it offense around the Torah. And so in order to not have any possibility of certain infractions, they put the fence really far out, right? The furthest, one of the furthest ones is separate dishes from milk and meat, right? So that you shouldn't in any way, shape, or form cook a kid in its mother's milk, right? right? So that's one of the most almost absurdly, right, far out there fences that the Torah puts around the law. If, if you are worried about Remember, he, an Orthodox man can't have contact with a woman who is menstruating. Not his own wife, and certainly not anybody else's wife. Um, so to make sure that that never happens, you never touch any woman. Because you don't know, right? At an Orthodox wedding, the groom drops the ring into the bride's hand. He, they never put it on her finger. Because if the norm was that he puts it on her finger, what about the bride who's menstruating? Now he drops it into her hand. Well, now the entire gathered celebrants know that she's menstruating, which would be horrifying. So you protect against that by no groom ever touches any bride. Yes? So no man ever touches any woman publicly, including his wife. Because he can't, right, when she's... So it's all an extension to prevent things. And it, it has become a norm that is also about 
what is considered appropriate behavior. And it's not considered appropriate to touch women that you're not married to. So part of it is about menstruation. Another part of it is really about proper conduct. And it's not considered proper to touch women. Ah, we read it. We did. We read it. Well, what is the punishment? You're banished. You're not banished. You're cut off from your kin. You're cut off from your kin. And what else? Even worse. Hmm? No. You will be spewed out of the land. No, it is exile. Banishment is I send you away. If I banish you, I say you can't come back. Exile is others will come and take your land. You will be defeated in war and carried off as slaves. You will be spit out of the land. As were the ones who came before you, that is the only way you get to take the land. Is that they didn't deserve it. And if you continue to behave in ways that are unholy, then that toxifies the land. And you make the land toxic enough, it will spit you out. And that's what happened. That is what happened. So, this is why so many people say these are post-exilic texts. They are coming to explain how it could be that Yahweh, the eternal, was defeated. And its people dispersed and God's house destroyed. The only way to explain it, if you have an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God, the only way to explain all of that is that we deserved it. Yes? I think also it's hard for us, excuse me, as city dwellers... To understand the relationship to the land. I mean, it was the way you lived. It was where you got your food. And without land, you know, all, I mean, most, many of us are landless as it were. I mean, we may have the land our houses on. It's not that big a thing. I don't think the 20th, it doesn't seem to us, but I think to them, this was big time. Right. So, well, also, it's not just relationship to the land. Oh, it's, the, it's in the sanctuary. Um, it's not just relationship to the land. Yes, it, mm. for if you're agriculturist, if you're semi-nomadic pastoralist, in the ancient world you made your living from the land, 100%. Because even if you did trade, that had to come from somewhere. The resources have to come from somewhere, even if you trade them. Spices, you know, whatever. Or still, they come from the land. So you're dependent on the land to survive, 100%. Also, though... It's, it's one, part of it is about how you live and your resources. The other part of it is the ancient world was all about war. N- not having le- your land meant you were, def- you are done. You're done. You and your children and your children's children will be slaves. Landless. No rights. Right, no autonomy. No independence. Right? Remember, only a third of the ancient world's population was free. Two-thirds supported one-third. Two-thirds of the population had no control over their own destinies. 
So you did not want to be that two-thirds. You wanted to be in the one-third, right? And this says you will lose that if you don't behave properly. You will no longer um, deserve it. So, so it is definitely about how to live, but it's also you, your entire civilization is done if you're not in your land because it meant you got clobbered and destroyed as a culture, right? Where are the Edomites? Where are the Jebusites? Gone. Why are they gone? They got beaten and Rome took them over and done. Where are the Canaanites? So this is all this is always an argument for post-exilic texts. Yes. There are other arguments that say, well, no, it's a universal you know, understanding that that could happen and that would be the worst punishment possible, but a lot of scholars argue this is post-exilic. But this is a slippery slope because if you do something bad and you get punished, then how do you view the Holocaust? 100%. There are people within our own community who say the Holocaust was because of homosexuality and not keeping Shabbos. We we caused it by those gays and lesbians, those heinous sinners, and not lighting Shabbos candles. Okay, great, right? Fine, really? Okay, that you know. What do you? I mean, what can you say to? What, what can you say to that, right, kind of fundamentalist, disgusting theology? Yes. Yes. Or that the Well, I do not want to have a, a discussion out of my area, but I'm not going to say they're unrelated because what gives rise to nationalism in that in Europe? You know, so I'm not. I don't want to go there. It's way out of my realm of expertise. But I think there are some things that are that are factors, right? That and this is not to justify anything, right? God forbid. Um, there are factors, then you interpret those factors. So that's an interpretation of those factors that I disagree with, obviously. Um, but I think it's a factor. The Enlightenment's a factor in all of what happens in Europe when it gets all crazy. Um, not that you need to look at post-Enlightenment Europe for craziness, right, in the world, um, or, you know, megalomania. Um, but that, that to me is very different from theology, Right, factors and how you interpret them that might have contributed to the reality on the ground it, that sets the stage for the Shoah, we can argue and discuss. Theology is a whole nother business because that is ridiculous. And there's no zero FS, no truth in it for me. I'm going to read to you from Bishop John Shelby Spong in a little bit, um, his manifesto. There's zero truth in it, period. But what about, for instance, father-in-law married his niece. So 
that would be good. And they were orthodox. So, niece by marriage, niece by blood. Niece by blood. He married his brother's daughter. So my, all my, all my family, our whole family is of that evil spawn. <laughs> we were skewed out. Yeah. Did you know that today? <laughs> well, that explains it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I'm just wondering. Well, he, he must have been a pillar his society. He was. Whom they made so, Zoe was his his brother's daughter or his sister's daughter? Yeah, his daughter. So that might make a difference. Oh, okay. That might make a difference. <laughs> Truly. Because gender matters in these things. So, um, so, so I don't, did we, did we see niece in this list? Eleven? The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter. Your father's wife's daughter. That's not necessarily. That's different. That's different. No, we don't get Where? See. It's not there. So remember, you wanted in certain Orthodox circles, especially Hasidic, you wanted to marry within the dynasty. Um, you you wanted yichus. You wanted to and you wanted to marry within the family. Also, there was a sense of if somebody dies childless, if some. I mean, there's you know, there's all those ways that you want to continue the the. The family, Levitic, like because the other exception is leveret marriage, right? The brother dies without a son; he marries the sister. Um, he marries the sister. Right. The right. Okay. So, um, all right. Erva. So nakedness is a euphemism for sexuality. So it's about access. So you, when it says, because it's your father's nakedness, meaning it belongs to your father. Access to her belongs to your father. It's about rights. It's about, who, remember we've talked about a woman's sexuality was not her own in the ancient world. It belonged to someone else. So this is not about who her sexuality belongs to. So why, why do they uh, in twenty use carnal relations instead of nakedness at that point? Because this is not about you have access to your wife. You already have it. You, you can uncover her nakedness. So what it's saying is when you can't is when she's menstruating. You may not access her sexuality when she's menstruating. So it could have said, don't uncover her nakedness while she's mentioned, but it, it, it's talking, don't uncover the nakedness is about you don't have access to that person's sexuality. This is saying you who does have that may not have carnal relationships with her while she's menstruating. Were you talking about 20? Verse 20, that's the next verse. That was 19. Oh, 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 sorry, with your neighbor's wife? 
the use of carnal is a different term. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. Um, so actually the Hebrew is, um, you should not, and, and I don't mean to be graphic, but I'm going to be graphic. You shall not place your layer of semen in her. So you tell me why it uses that. What do you think that's about? Procreation. Procreation, exactly. Yeah. You shall not impregnate your neighbor's wife. So it's getting at one of the real problems, right? Is it that that person, if she's married, that offspring will be a mamzer, will be a bastard, and will be um, ostracized from the community. So, so it's really about the offspring. It's bad enough that you have relations with someone whose sexuality doesn't belong to you, but it's this is talking about when it's compounded. Really, it's really about how it gets really problematic. Is now you have an an offspring that's not welcome in the community. And let's be clear about mamzer, by the way. Um, mamzer, bastard, is not a child born out of wedlock. Let's be very clear. It is a child born out of incest, like one of these forbidden relationships, or with someone whose sexuality belongs to someone else. Because if you allow that child to be accepted you have now opened the door, right? So that was one of the ways of controlling the, the behavior was to say any offspring from that will be completely ostracized, right? So um, so it is not out of wedlock. It's, it's come to mean that in our popular imagination, but that's not what it means. Is that like a bad word that called somebody that? Is that yeah. <laughs> no, 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 because I said, yeah, it's a swear word. Of course. Just like in English. Just like in English. You bastard is, it was once upon a time one of the worst things you could say. Son of a, you know, whatever, right? Now you're insulting their mother, you know, so. Yeah, same in Hebrew. I remember it being used in a way where the kid was just so capable and able to get away with stuff that there was admiration in it. He's, he's such a mamzer, you know. Interesting. He had some, some little positive spin on it. Well, and, but, and you can do that in English, too. I mean, if you think about it, you that little bastard. Yeah. He stole my whatever and got away. So yeah. it, it really is very, it is very parallel, I think, to English bastard. It's about yeah. being able to violate maybe norms yeah, yeah. of behavior. Absolutely. Like Pisher, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's not a lovely word, yeah. Yeah. but usually there's an undertone even of endearment when you say something about yes. the little Pisher. Oh, admiring the spirit of the kid. Right. As opposed to a Vildechaya. Vildechaya, there wasn't a lot uh, of sweetness that went along generally with calling a child a wild animal. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Briefly, <coughs> uh, to look at the text of 22, 
18.22, that you shall not lie with Zachar, with a male, right? Lo tishkav mishkavei isha. Literally, you shall, with a male, you shall not lie the lyings of a woman. So, there's been lots of interpretation of exactly what that means. Um, and most likely from the scholars that, you know, you can imagine I've studied this a bit um, as a gay theology Bible person, you know, especially in Duluth, right? You know, I got asked lots of times about this. Um, so I've studied it a lot, and I am fairly convinced by the literature that says it was associated with Canaanite practice, um, and so it was abhorrent, right? So, like, where it says that's what all these other people have done before you, right? And it's why they're getting kicked out, right? So it's somehow associated with kind of decadent, um, sexual, like, no sexual more mores, or right? Think Greece, you know? Think just no limits, um, decadence, decadence <laughs> indulgence. Um, so that, it, there's that. And there is fairly convincing um, material, and I, I, for some reason, can't remember who it was, what scholar it was. There's fairly convincing evidence, if you ask me, for this being about, um, remember how we've had things that crawl in the ocean and then can be on land? That that boundary is like, scary, like in some ways that makes you say, no, you can't eat that. When it crosses, when it crosses um, bound. You know, some boundaries that makes, you know, the ancient world, like, nervous around religious stuff. And so that this is one of those places where for a man to put himself in the receptive sexual position is upsetting the natural, I want to use this carefully, the natural order of things. The same way it upsets the natural order that something can live in the water and on the land. That's just not normative. And so it's different enough that you're like, okay, we can't do that, right? It's like, bleh. so this is about power, right? This is about the men are in the dominant sexual position vis-a-vis women. You shall not put yourself in the, a man shall not lie with a male who is mishkavei isha, who's doing the lyings of a woman. That's the troubling part. Right? It doesn't have to, it just should, it could say don't have carnal relations with another man. It doesn't say that. It, it says the problem seems to be a male lying the lyings of a woman. You're not allowed to dress in the clothing of the other gender either. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, it's about, it's about role reversal that was understood to be not in the natural order of things. Men are supposed to be dominant. They're dominant and they are dominant sexually. Therefore, it is abhorrent to flip that and have them be submissive and be the sexual and be the, and be penetrated, essentially. Because you'll, what's not here? If it's about only, it doesn't say anything about a woman. Because because she doesn't matter. What women do with each other, pfft, it doesn't even register. Who cares what they do with one another? Because they're already submissive. So 
all right, if, if I'm taking the dominant role, does that make me... It doesn't have the factor of you're the dominant one and now you're going to submit and be penetrated. There seems to be, and I think there remains, a real problem for men around that, right? So much of homophobia, I think, is fueled by exactly this reaction that is still with us, right? Men going, they'll pay to watch two women. So it clearly is not something about the same gender, right? But you start talking about gay men, you, know, you start talking about men being penetrated and straight men get all like freaky. So um, so I think, so that's, that's what this is in general about and, um, and, and is about power and is about um, a violation of what was understood to be the natural order. So, so I have a question Created so, that. but let, let's be clear. It is not that you, that other people can't eat it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. It is off limits for you as an Israelite to eat it. So then, if it's unnatural for a man to lie with a man, maybe that's just for the Canaanites yeah, can, can do that. Anybody else can do. They it? can do that. You Israelites are not allowed. We're, we have tighter borders and boundaries around what's permitted and not permitted. I was just going to reflect on hearing a lecture by Rabbi, the late Rabbi Schulweis about this text. And he said that when he reads the Torah, he, he uses his brain. And he decides that if there are certain things that his brain tells him don't make sense or are not morally correct, it's fine to reject them and I think well that's kind of how reconstructionism 100% view, and he was viewed as a reconstructionist even though he had a conservative congregation but I 100%. think the idea that we can use our brains we don't have to take everything literally is a really important concept absolutely which is how we study Torah here right you know some things we, we what we try to do is appreciate it in its own context so that we just can understand it and then we make decisions about is that still our Morality is that still our um, is that still what we consider to be moral? Because because we evolve. One thing I do want to say though is it he may have read the Torah with his brain, but I bet he didn't eat those things that live in the water and crawl on the land. So right, right. So we still right, you know, where we use our brain and where we're like, oh, but I still connect with that being off limits is interesting, isn't it? Like, why would you? So in other words, he would reject homosexuality and the prohibition against homosexuality on that basis, but not shrimp. So, right? So it's just, it's fascinating. That we're not even consistent, you know. Yes. Which is, makes it troubling to say, well, I'm going to use my brain. Right. It means that for yourself, you can choose what makes sense to you in your brain or your heart or wherever, which of these connect with you. But to say, and everybody else has to follow the same way that I believe, is a different thing. And so in some ways, to follow, you know, all or nothing is a very comforting position. Sure. Heck yeah. And, and a lot more justifiable. It's a lot more consistently justifiable. You know, how do you say, oh, 
I'm going to use my brain. But if you're I, not going to do, if you're not going to do all or nothing, which I'm not suggesting, <laughs> that then the problem is, then what and how? Yes. Then what and and who decides? And, and who, who decides? decides? Are the deci- are the decisions made by family? Are they made by Jewish society? By the Jewish community? By each individual? And the and I mean, if it. if we sit here, we okay. So you're not supposed to carry wood on on the Sabbath on Shabbos. Well, you're supposed to get killed, right? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, you're supposed to get killed if you carry wood on the Shabbos. Now, I don't think any of us would think that was binding on us, and so we throw that out. So where do we? What? Yeah. What? Where do we draw it? I once read going back to to uh, twenty two. Uh, it was actually a reconstructionist analysis of of this, and the what what the rabbi was saying was there are conflicting mitzvot that all these things don't all fit together in this entire book, and that sometimes we have to look at one and the other and say you know it says love your neighbor as yourself or it says uh, we're all created in God's image. How do we reconcile that with other things? that it says, and we've got to make our choice. But it gets back to who chooses and how. And that's part of the difference between the movements, quite frankly. It also gets back to, um, is some, are some things more elevated, more fundamental than others? But and, if so, and, and if so, how do we know? And who decides? Maybe it comes through with wisdom and with your elders, that's why the elders were valued Right, that, well, that gets which, to the community sets the standards. Right. Which elders? And, so, and, which, and which elders? And, and how long do you wait after eating meat before having dairy? <laughs> Tackle that one. It depends on what country you're in and what community you're in. And even among the Orthodox. I think Schulweis, when he said use his brain, I shouldn't just say brain. I think it was moral conscience, moral conscience right. of what he was talking about. Sure. And he was one of the first rabbis to, to have family support systems for lesbians and gays. So he put his money where his mouth was. Uh, So I'm going to read you just a little bit from um, Bishop John Shelby Spong, who's no longer bishop. Um, He got in a lot of trouble for (laughs) stuff he was saying. He's one of my favorite people. He's a man of moral conscience who, like Rabbi Shulweis, stood up early and loudly um, for gays and lesbians and everybody who's kind of marginalized and and silenced and shunned. Uh, and gotten, wrote one of the best books on the topic I've ever studied called Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. <laughs> if, if ever you are needing to deal with the issue of fundamentalism and the Torah or the, or the Christian Bible, because he is a scholar of both, um, it is one of the best books you can just have. <laughs> you know, like, just Read some of it. Just go to one little part. He's amazing, and I've given it to people who are trying to recover from fundamentalism, um, I, and it's been hugely helpful for people who are trying to leave that thought system and don't know how, because it's how you get from here to there. Like, we're over there, but if you're starting here and are ready to think about moving a little bit, how do you do that? We're not great at helping people with that. We're like, use your brain. Use your moral conscience, duh, right? Um, but for some, that's a really hard move for people. So this is a fabulous book. But he wrote a manifesto um, about a decade ago, I think. And uh, I'll just read you little parts of it. He says, 
I have made a decision. I will no longer debate the issue of homosexuality in the church with anyone. I will no longer engage the biblical ignorance that emanates from so many right-wing Christians about how the Bible condemns homosexuality if that point of view still has any credibility. I will no longer discuss with them or listen to them tell me how homosexuality is an abomination to God, how homosexuality is a chosen lifestyle, or about how through prayer and spiritual counseling homosexual persons can be cured. Those arguments are no longer worthy of my time or energy. I will no longer dignify by listening to the thoughts of those who advocate reparative therapy as if homosexual persons are somehow broken and need to be repaired. I'll drop down. So he's he's saying he's commenting on we love the sinner but hate the sin, you know, that that position. That statement is I have concluded nothing more than a self-serving lie designed to cover the fact that these people hate homosexual persons and fear homosexuality itself but somehow know that hatred is incompatible with the Christ they claim to profess so they adopt this face saving and absolutely false statement i will no longer temper my understanding of truth in order to pretend that i have even a tiny smidgen of respect for the appalling negativity that continues to emanate from religious circles where the church has for centuries conveniently perfumed its ongoing prejudice against blacks, Jews, women and homosexual persons with what it assumes is high-sounding pious rhetoric. The day for that mentality has quite simply come to an end for me. I will personally neither tolerate it nor listen to it any longer. And it goes on um, from there. Can you give a citation on this again? This um, is not you talking. This is this is <laughs> this is no. Bishop John Shelby Spong of the Episcopal Church. Um, what happened to him since then? Where is he now? He was no longer bishop after a while, um, saying these kinds of things quite publicly. Uh, and he continues to write and speak and and inspire and inform so many of, of of us people of faith who want to walk firmly and solidly with integrity in our tradition, right? And come out this clearly against ridiculousness um, in all its forms. He's what I guess what excites me so much about it is him saying, "I'm done discussing it." I'm done. I will not dignify that position with a debate any longer. I'm done. And like there's a part of me that got to that place with abortion, right? I was in abortion care for four years at a feminist women's health center. Um, we went to 26 weeks. So nobody needs to talk to me about what a fetus looks like at 26 weeks. I saw them. So you want to start with me? So I used to like dig in and don't get me going. And here we go. I'd be standing in line at Burger King. And what do you do for a living? And here we go. Because I'm going to now get your opinion on abortion. I don't care about your opinion on abortion. Right? So, um, but it took me a long time to get there. Um, and <laughs> there's still some heat around it, as you can tell. Um, but finally, I got to a place of, you know what? I'm not debating this anymore. I'm not discussing it with you anymore. Period. I believe in a woman's right to choose. Done. It's like evolution. Like evolution. And he says something about, I will not discuss whether or not the earth is flat with people either. Like, you know, just kind of like, I'm done with like ridiculous, yeah. you know, arguments that just don't deserve there's time and energy and attention. It's, there's such a relief in that, Sarah. Thank you. I think, 
and such a relief to hear brilliant people who are empowered within the church to finally say enough with the you know xenophobia, the homophobia, you know the semitophobia, um, you know Jews, um, you know like anti-Semitism. Like let's just call it what it is and be done with it. And what an amazing human being! Like what an amazing example and. And what a profound sense of relief to just go, I, I'm not discussing this. Because it's not, would I be discussing that, you know, that we didn't evolve from monkeys? Really? What? 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 No, meaning, yeah, I'm not going to argue with somebody our right to exist. Done. Right, I'm just saying I'm not, there are certain things I'm not going to argue about anymore. I'm not going to debate, I'm not going to discuss, I don't want to, I'm done, I don't want to hear it. You, you can have your discussion over here, come to me later and we can have lunch and find common ground and find the place, places we can work together to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to take care of children who don't have a home. Great. But about these other things, I'm not discussing it with you. Done. So um, it's called a manifesto. By Bishop John Shelby Spong. So uh, read it. It's fantastic. Was he uh, allowed to stay in the church? Or did they you know, I forget what his position in the church is now. I'm not sure. I think, I think, and I, I know this is going to go out over the airwaves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he left the Episcopal Church. I'm not positive. But Voluntarily? Well, he was, I think, removed from position of bishop. So they were done with him. On that level. But I think he finally said, I'm not even staying within the church as a person in the pew. Okay, and what, just, what, is, what is the range then of Jewish voices? On, on, the, on, on, on this Same range. Issue? From fundamentalism to us in this room. Same range. And if you ask me, fueled by the same thing. Fueled by... I think it's demonstrative of ignorance on some level. I think it's fueled by homophobia. I think it's fueled by straight men's fear of their own sexuality, frankly. That's where, that's where I think the fuel is. And the heat is around the phobia part, right? Whoever it is that we put in that category uh, as other, like we love to hate something that makes me feel better about that I'm... Not other. So we're going to go there. And I think that this verse just demonstrates that that's an ancient fear. That it's not new and it's not... Whoever's writing then has the same issues that people have now. It doesn't mean that it's... Maybe in this same time, there was still the, the multiple multitude of positions. Oh, yeah, yeah, because the desire for it is there. If you have to say don't do it, it means people were doing it. So, yes, so it was there. Homosexuality has always been there, um, and the reactions to it have always, they've ranged from this, right, which is a fundamentalist no position, to the Greeks who said, if you're not sleeping with your teacher, you're not a favorite student. Right? That that's how the teacher shows love for the people who's exceptional is that you have a sexual relationship, that you're involved to that extent, right? Sappho on the island of Lesbos, right, was writing, you know, her poetry was to her 
charges with whom she was involved. Yes? Yes. No, my mind's just going to my niece who's her in college. I thought she's not a favorite. Yeah. Right? Right. All right, so let's look at um, chapter 19. We're going to do a few verses. Um, so someone read 17 and 18 of chapter 19. Adonai spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the whole Israelite community and say to them, You shall be holy for I No, 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 no. You mean verse 17. 19, 17. Oh, 17, I'm sorry. Indeed. Okay. Okay. Hey, just in the course of an hour, Paula. (laughs) Stick with me. Okay. You shall not hate your kinfolk in your heart. Remove your kin. No, uh, read it again. It's important. You shall not hate your kinfolk in your heart. Next word. Oh, <laughs> right, not remove. <laughs> Don't remove your your kinsmen. Remove your kin, but incur no guilt on their account. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people. Love your fellow Israelite as yourself. I am Adonai. All right, let's stay there. So generally, we see these as as. You know, just different examples of different things that we're supposed to be about. One, don't hate, right? Achicha, literally your brother, right? So family members, right, who are sometimes the hardest not to hate, mm-hmm. right? Who, who do we hate the most? The ones we're around mm-hmm. and who drive us crazy, right? So do not hate your kinfolk in your heart. Usually we think, okay, now here comes number two. This is hocheach tochiach. This is a tochacha, a rebuke. Rebuke your kinsmen. You have an obligation. If you see somebody doing something wrong, you have an obligation to address it. Or else you participate in it. So reprove your kinsmen, but incur no guilt in doing so. So what does that mean? Generally interpreted as you must rebuke someone but you must do it in a way that you don't bring on yourself the sin of shaming them or hurting them um, the rabbis have lots of literature on this we're not going there uh, we could another time um, but lots about what that means right you, you can only go to somebody to do a tochacha when they're open when you're calm when you're ready to forget right so it can't be like judgy and angry and, and blaming and all that all right um, now, on a third one, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge, right? You shall not take revenge or just walk around mm-hmm. pissed off at somebody, exactly, against your countrymen. So now that's a bigger group, right, of people. And as a matter of fact, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then the tag on that we see in other places, I am Adonai. Meaning, I'm Adonai, you're my people, this is who I am, so you have to be reflective of that. Okay, usually we see these as separate things. Rabbi Yael Shai has a beautiful teaching that I'm going to share with you right now. Coming out of, remember, she's a mindfulness practitioner, right? Her, her orientation to spirituality is mindfulness um, practice. 
So it's going to come from that space. So if that's not a space that you work from, that's fine. I think it's still really a beautiful teaching. So she says, don't, that we're looking at this commandment, don't hate. She says, these things that we just read are actually all one thing. How do we get there? Don't hate. Sonet. She says, what is this? What is this business, Sonet? How does Sonet happen? And she says, Sonet happens when we take a piece of reality, capital R, and split it off. Because there's something about it we don't like. Something's going on that makes us uncomfortable. There's lots that we could fill in about how that happens. We don't have a lot of time. Um, but it, I'm afraid, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm sad, I'm whatever. And so this thing touches something off. And so now I'm going to split that piece of reality off and I'm going to turn away from it. Right? And, and I'm going to judge it as bad. And when I do that, when I turn away and judge it as bad, it generates this energy of, so now I'm going to reject it. And this is sona. This leads then to hating something or someone. Is, is this the word in Hebrew that means enemy? No. Oyev is enemy. Sona is hate. That's interesting because in Yiddish, sona, soina, is an enemy. No, it's the yes, but how derives from the one who hates you, the one you hate. Okay, that's and you've just proven her point, right? Right. So, because the minute I hate, what happens? Or she would flip it. You know, it becomes your enemy, right? And there's all this emotion of what we might put in the category of hatred, at least note to hate. So she says, the less we challenge our hatred, the more space it takes up in our lives, limiting our natural ability to be open, loving, and present. God is telling us to refuse to allow anger and fear to progress to the point of hatred. We must back out of that dark corner and trace the hatred backwards. Because when we hate, what's really going on, right, is something here. Something in here. On a personal level, then what do you do? You ah, away. Don't worry, we're going there. <laughs> so she says, the thing that comes next is actually part of how we do this. You shall surely rebuke your fellow, but not incur, right, a sin on that, on that account. This is puzzling, right? How does this follow from not hating your brother? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs argues that this verse requires us to try engaging with the person that is causing us pain. So not only is it don't hate, but the very next verse is, so you shall rebuke or reprove or in, you know, the words of Saxon, I think Yael Shai is agreeing, engage in conflict. Because so often, the minute we got anything going on and we're feeling hate, we're feeling all that fear and anger and judgy and push it awayness. What happens? Okay, I'm done. I'm clear. 
you know, about bad, right? And then we're locked in that. And that the spiritual teaching is, no, you have to push past that and respectfully engage exactly what is making you hate. That's a lot oh. Okay, so, but if, okay, I hate people who, what, right? So fill in the blank. I hate people who, and that generates a lot of energy, who, what, judge, right? I hate people who judge, aha, uh-huh. really, okay. So when there's judgy going on, right, can I back it up enough to say, Laura, when you judge me as a, I don't fill in the blank. Gay person? This this is what happens for me. This is what happens for me. I feel afraid. I fear for my daughter. I fear for my own safety. I feel for my inability to be a whole human being, living up to my potential to contribute. Okay, how different is that? You don't... I'm, I'm rebuking the judging. Right? The... That you're, I'm engaging with what it is that makes me nuts in an attempt to not be locked in hate. You can rebuke. You yeah. can reprove the behavior. Yeah. Right? I think that the, the language of rebuke or reprove conjures up a different kind of response to the one that you just sort of... Which is why we do this. Because yeah. it's a beautiful... Purposeful, different way to read it, which I just think is brilliant. You were talking about, when you're talking, you're talking about how you feel like it's evil or such and such. But part of having a dialogue with somebody else is that other person has to be willing to engage Of course, of course. Of course. Hundred percent. Go absolutely goes without saying. Absolutely. And that well you have to be able to handle it that they don't want to So the rabbis when they discuss this are very clear that it has to be done in a way but the confrontation must occur when the one who has been harmed is in an emotional state of openness and equanimity such that forgiveness is truly possible. Right? That's Maimonides. He's writing in the 1200s. Um, all right. So once we get that, right, that, that our responsibility is to respond, not just to hate and turn away and shut down and all of that, then what follows from that is the next one, which is what? In our text. Right. Take revenge. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge. These, she says, are the two traditional outgrowths of anger. When we don't or can't confront the aggressor or when the confrontation does not yield an apology, we want revenge on a primal level, to hurt the other as we ourselves are hurting. We want to push the terrible pain within ourselves out and onto the person who hurt us. Of course, aside from a moment of satisfaction when we lash out, most acts of revenge, big and small, simply cause more pain and damage to all parties involved. Right. So if, if it doesn't come out the way we want, or we don't engage in it, or we do in a way that like it that it doesn't go very well, we tend to now want to, we want revenge, right? Or for sure, 
we want to bear a grudge. I'll show, I'll show, I'm going to talk to her again. That's different. That's not revenge. That's self-defense. You are commanded to defend yourself and your family, even if it means taking someone's life. So that is very different from revenge. Revenge is you're safe, right? But they killed a member of your family, and now you're going to go take vengeance, right? Um, and, and, it, and it's here. Why is it here? Why does it say don't do that? Because <laughs> this is what we this is this is where we go. We're human. I would love to see this put into practice around the issue of a family member who does not feel that Israel has the right to uh, shoot back at Hamas and feels that Israel is the aggressor always and the people who are building the tunnels with the cement that Israel sends them to build houses have no responsibility. I am dealing with this in my own family and it's rough. I don't know about how to deal with it. It's really rough. Yeah. It's really rough. I put it on Facebook. I couldn't believe this. I put it on Facebook. Um, I wasn't even thinking. I was just proud and saying that Israel was the country that was sending the most boots on the ground basically in Nepal to help with the recovery. Other countries sent money, but we All right, because it's hard. Right, so what comes after this? We say how hard it is to not bear a grudge and not take revenge and like, you know, right? So what comes next, you would think? Right. You will love them as yourself. And she knows what your reaction is going to be. What? What? How am I supposed to do that? And so she goes on. If we take this line, the thing that comes next, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, she's she's linking all these, which I love. If that's the next line, you're, what? Not only are you not supposed to take revenge or bear a grudge, you shall love them? What? She says, if we take it more as a description and less as a directive... We actually have the answer. We are not able to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's not what it means. It's we will love our neighbor as ourselves. What's the difference? The degree to which we are able to love others, the degree to which we are able to tolerate those who intentionally and unintentionally cause us harm is directly proportional to the degree we love and understand and know ourselves. If we want to love others more, we must start with ourselves, our own demons, 
and uglinesses and fears. Because that's not where we get stuck. It's really not what they think about Israel that makes me crazy. It's my fear. You're saying stuff that touches my existential fear for the state of Israel and the Jewish people. That's the fuel. That's your like, you know, well, that's what she's suggesting. I don't want to tell anybody what anything is, but I know it's true for me, right? When I feel the heat, when it's really heated, when I really can't deal with it, when they really drive, something, it's touching something in me. They're not the issue. My fear is, or my rage, or my pain, that's what, that's where the heat is. So you will love your neighbor only to the extent that you love yourself. You will love them as you love yourself. And the more we can heal our own fear or address our own fear, hold our own fear, deal with our own pain, to the extent that we can do that, we are then able to deal much more lovingly with everything and everybody else because it really ain't ever about them. And my favorite that she closes with is, don't understand this last part to be a tag on. What's the last part? I am Yudhei Don't see that as that's why you'll do it. She says that's the assurance that you can. There is a reason that Rabbi Akiva says that loving our neighbor like ourselves is the fundamental principle of Torah. It is at the core of Judaism, the core of holiness. We get a reminder of the importance of love with this final line. Lest we forget who is giving us this nearly impossible instruction, God says, I am the eternal. It feels to me, she says, like an assurance. You can do this very hard thing. You can do it because I do it. You can do it because you were made in my image and that image is love. (laughs) Even that which feels to us impossible, we can do because we are of the divine. We have the capacity to be and behave and act uh, in ways that are expressive of our being children of the divine, pieces of the divine, sparks off the divine flame. Uh, and it is, it is when we forget that or doubt that that we are most likely to leave this path of goodness and forgiveness and patience and grace and strength and courage and healing. So may we this Shabbat find ways to uh, engage with ourselves and our community like this, um, that we may be encouraged uh, to be closer to the ideal that we see uh, expressed in this text. Again, the teaching of Rabbi Yael Shai. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.